Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome uh, to Cato Online here. I want to thank everybody uh, watching for joining us. Our event today is focused on Congress and COVID-19, the impact thereof. Uh, I am your host, Patrick Eddington, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined by a wonderful group uh, of panelists today, uh, starting with Daniel Schumann, who is Policy Director at Demand Progress, Liz Hempelwitz, uh, Director of Public Policy at the Project on Government Oversight, and Corinna Turbis, Policy Manager at the Data Coalition. My thanks to all of you uh, for joining us today and giving us the opportunity to benefit from your wisdom. Uh, just a, a quick note for all of you who are uh, watching right now. Uh, we're going to be taking questions during the course uh, of this event, and we're going to be doing that via our webpage from Facebook, uh, from Twitter, and from YouTube. So definitely keep those questions uh, coming in. We will turn to those questions after we have had our conversation, so do bear with us. Uh, we will do our very best to leave enough time to get to all those questions. Um, I want to begin um, by essentially kind of going around and asking our panelists to, to briefly talk about their organizations, uh, what they do, and especially exactly how the COVID-19 crisis has affected their organizations, but particularly their ability to actually accomplish anything with folks uh, on Capitol Hill, given the fact that Congress has pretty much been uh, absent without leave or AWOL, as we would say in the military, for the better part of, of five weeks now. So, uh, Daniel of Demand Progress, let me start with you. Well, so it's been difficult. Um, Congress, of course, isn't able to do its job. Uh, none of its committees or the, you know, either chamber, uh, either floor, so it's been very hard for us to, to do our usual work of, of working with the legislature to develop legislation. Uh, since we are a uh, grassroots organization, we are able to still communicate to some extent with Congress. We are able to have people send in the you know, emails and things like that, although phone calls are generally not answered. Um, but otherwise, uh, we've been putting most of our effort into trying to help Congress to get back to work. Uh, so to answer your question, Pat, it's been, it's been very difficult to, to work with the legislative branch right now. Liz Hempelwitz, how about uh, Pogo? Um, you guys have got a very aggressive agenda, I know. Give, give us a sense of where things stand. Yeah, so, you know, Project on Government Oversight, um, we exist as a nonpartisan independent watchdog organization that conducts our own oversight over um, the executive branch, but also works to ensure that um, additional oversight mechanisms, both internal and external to government, are are functioning as, as strongly as possible. And so, um, echoing what Daniel said, uh, a lot of my work is working with, with Congress to um, advance a legislative uh, agenda, and that is is kind of very much up in the air right now. But in terms of kind of the importance of the work of oversight, I think we're in a real moment right now where Americans across the country um, are really seeing the, the tangible value of oversight um, over federal government spending in particular and, and how it'll impact their daily lives. Um, you know, we have a ton of money going out the door as part of um, the national response to coronavirus. But um, even with oversight mechanisms in place, it's, it's it's going to be really critical that we make sure that 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 money gets where it's necessary and where Congress intended it to go. Um, so I think uh, it's it's harder to do our jobs in in some way, but in in many ways it's it's more important now than ever. 
Corinna, uh, the Data Coalition, its bread and butter really is trying to get the government to put data out that all of us can use. What has this done, essentially, both both for your own agenda at, at the Data Coalition, but also to, to the overall objectives that, that you all have? Um, that's a great question. Uh, a lot of what the Data Coalition has been working on in the last year is the implementation process behind the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking. This fits in really well with the Data Coalition's agenda of transparency and government spending, tying that to program, program outcomes. So just to echo what Liz said, this has become incredibly important as we see just massive sums of money being infused into these programs. But the data infrastructure is starting to be there to do this effectively and efficiently. So a lot of our work in the last few weeks has been trying to identify and push forward the infrastructure changes that could really help get data to Congress, to the executive branches in a timely way. And I just want to make note for our audience uh, listening and watching out there uh, with the system that we're using, there is about a, a two second or so latency. Uh, so if you're seeing a little bit of that, um, that's normal essentially for the platform we're using right now. Uh, back back to the questions here. You know, I, uh, during the Cold War, of course, the Congress, along with the executive branch, had plans in place falling under what's basically known as continuity of government or COG, right? And this was all about being prepared for, you know, God forbid, an actual nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. In other words, a, a way to essentially kind of carry on the business of government uh, in the event of something like that. Uh, Daniel, I'll start with you. Why was there no COG, no, no continuity of government program in place to deal with a pandemic? It, it's not like we haven't seen uh, you know, other kinds of issues, other kinds of crises that have cropped up in the past that have required Congress to, you know, kind of legislate on the fly and do things a little bit differently. Why was there nothing in place here? So I, I think it comes down to, to a couple of things. First of all, members of Congress are not particularly good at planning ahead to begin with. Uh, there was a post-9-11 uh, continuity of Congress commission that in 2003 made a number of recommendations around continuity of Congress. And then Congress decided not to implement the vast majority of them because they couldn't contemplate their own mortality. Um, I'm being a little bit flip here. The reason they didn't want to put into place these recommendations was in large part because it has, because it would have affected the way that power is exercised inside the legislative branch. And anytime anything has the possibility of affecting the way that power works inside the House or in the Senate, leadership gets a little bit uptight and they're very unwilling to move things forward. Now we had warned the House and the Senate, you know, or, or, or our allies had warned them 20 years ago about these problems. Uh, there was a report sent in last October that explained the likelihood the possibility of a pandemic and how they need to get ready for it. That report was unheeded. We sent recommendations and letters to um, the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, on March 12th saying, put into place emergency rules if you leave, you might not be able to come back and you won't be able to conduct business. Unfortunately, both the House and Senate leadership uh, expressed a strong reluctance to do, the, to do the things that they needed to do. And as a consequence, they both left and we're in the circumstance today where members are flying in uh, at grave peril to their personal health um, to go and basically enact the leadership's agenda. They have a vote, but not a voice. 
the committees are non-functioning, and the legislative branch for the foreseeable future is defunct. So the reason why is because leadership is unwilling to do this because they are afraid of how it possibly affects their power. And the consequence means that they are giving up their power and what they are doing is making the executive branch very powerful and by their absence, undermining the efficacy of the legislative branch. Liz, and if I could just jump in and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I just wanted to kind of emphasize something that Daniel said, that there have been, you know, the, the idea that, that we would be hit with a pandemic eventually um, is not new. And people have been warning about, the experts have been warning about this for decades. And so what is the old adage? If you uh, fail to plan, you plan to fail. I think to the extent that we are hitting on the Trump administration for not adequately planning um, to respond to this, I think, you know, Congress does deserve uh, some some share of blame here uh, because you know they they didn't plan for this and and it was foreseeable. Corinna, from a um, from kind of a data availability standpoint, has has this crisis thus far with the changes in federal agency and department manning levels has it had a demonstrable impact? on the availability of the kinds of data that, let's say, uh, the data coalition partners essentially rely upon on kind of a day-to-day -day basis? So there have been instances of delays in data publication from before the pandemic. So it's hard to attribute some delays uh, based on that. But I think there, this is really highlighting that there are improvements that can be made within our federal data infrastructure that can really help improve and create this sort of continuity to our data publication. For example, in the financial sector, there is a lot of unstructured data that gets reported that needs to be done manually that the private sector has solutions to that the, these reports, this data could be automated, could be uh, produced faster. And as we see that uh, productivity is going down, that people have to work remotely, that there are opportunities for our data infrastructure to really improve in a remote environment. And, and to just kind of follow up on that a little bit, have we, has there been any talk uh, uh, in terms of, or was there anything even in the previous CARES package, the, the very large relief package that was passed, designed to address that kind of an issue? Was, was there any money in there for that particular purpose? Yeah, there was quite a bit of, in the, in the CARES Act, there was $500 million uh, to the CDC to help modernize their data, their health, uh, public health surveillance, as well as modernizing their information analytics. And that is incredibly helpful and can be uh, really important. You know, we can see more, obviously, uh, for example, the National Center for Health Statistics with their electronic death reporting system could be invested in and modernized and really help get that rapid, up-to-date, big data analytics that can be really uh, helpful in making evidence-based policy around these things. We have to make decisions very fast and a modern data infrastructure can is the way to go. So Liz, Corinna having kind of set, set the scenario here for how things could be better, 
is Congress actually in a position to ensure proper oversight of that $500 million, uh, just to use the example there, uh, with, with HHS and CDC? Uh, you know, are, are they in a position really to conduct any kind of effective oversight right now, uh, given the, the vast amount of money that, that's being unprecedented crisis? Well, I think the easiest way to answer that question is to look at some of the most powerful tools that Congress has to conduct oversight. So their their ability to um, issue subpoenas. Um, we're not really seeing that happen because committees have to meet and decide on that. Uh, so I would say no. Um, although, you know, there there are other ways. You know, members of Congress can do their own independent oversight. Um, they don't need to act through a committee. They're just not in the strongest position to do that. So a single member asking a question of an agency or even a handful of members asking are are not as likely to get a response. Um, you know, and we've seen that uh, happen time and time again, not just under this administration, but um, but previous administrations as well, where, where um, Congress has had a really difficult time of getting the executive branch to cooperate and really having to exercise their strongest oversight authorities to, to get compliance. Um, and they're really not in a great position to do that right now. And, and I haven't seen, um, you know, any really great plan on, on how they plan to address that going forward. So, so they, you know, they, they are able to conduct some oversight. Uh, and I would encourage members to be doing that, of course, but, but no, in terms of kind of the bigger picture, like, are they best situated? Are they well situated to conduct oversight right now? No, they're not. Um, luckily, Congress isn't the only one uh, that, conduct, that can conduct oversight um, over the executive branch and, and the programs that it's administering right now. So there's inspectors general. Um, there's also additional oversight mechanisms that were created under the CARES Act. Um, but even those are running into some challenges and they were, you know, wholly conceived in this time where we are all working from home. And so I think that is, um, that's another thing that, that we should be keeping an eye on. But, but I do think there are some changes necessary to ensure that, that those oversight mechanisms are, are set up to work right now. Corinna, you had a thought, uh, and then I want to go Dan, because I want us to get into some level of detail about the actual state of play, but Corinna, go ahead. Yeah, I would just like to point out that, you know, in addition to Liz's point of how Congress fully executes on this oversight is really contingent on the data that they have about government spending and where it's going. And there have been real meaningful improvements in the last few years about that, and particularly with the Data Act of 2014. This established government-wide standards for financial data and simplified reporting for the agencies, which is all then submitted to usaspending.gov. So these agencies are reporting their data in a public and open, accessible way that will be an incredibly important tool for Congress to help. And prior to 2014, we just didn't have that same sort of open, available data. Daniel, um, give us what you will about why it is uh, that leadership in the House has been so absolutely adamantly opposed to trying to to actually engage in remote operations. I mean, I think just to kind of bifurcate this a little bit, I, I think there's one issue having to do with um, remote committee operations. It's a different issue when you talk about how you're going to vote on the floor. So if, if you can kind of break it down for us a little bit, that would be tremendously helpful. Yeah, I'd be very happy to do so. Uh, and let's so let's start with 
the big picture view, and then I'll I'll separate it between the the committees and the floors. So Congress historically is unwilling and unable to invest in itself, uh, and in the last twenty five years or so, it has destroyed its ability to do its job. There are uh, a thousand fewer House committee staffers than there were twenty five years ago. The Government Accountability Office has two thousand fewer people. CRS is down by fifteen percent, and so on across the board. So when you look at the legislative branch as a whole. They're not investing in their people. And in fact, they've cut a lot of the people that they had before. And the same is true for technology, where they are not using cutting edge technology. They're using the oldest sort of jankiest stuff that you can imagine to try to cobble together what's going on. And as a result, you have a relatively ineffective institution that is afraid to invest in itself because it's afraid that voters will be unhappy if they actually spend the pittance of money that's necessary on the legislative branch. And when you have Fewer staff, fewer institutionalists, higher turnover, less money, uh, and less less availability to build like better tech. What that means is that when it comes to things like remote deliberations, Congress is afraid. Right? They they don't have the people with the institutional knowledge of how to do it. They don't have the resources to pay for the fairly inexpensive and very useful technology that allows remote deliberations. And as a consequence, all of this stuff sort of breaks down and they're unwilling or unable to, you know, look around the corner. Now, when it comes to deliberating in committees around the floor, um, there's a lot of issues that get raised, most of which are nonsense issues. So people raise questions about constitutionality. Well, constitutionality is not really a problem. Or they raise questions around, well, you know, we need to spend months or years studying it. Well, you know, there was a report in 2003, so I don't know how much longer they need. Uh, or they'll raise questions around, well, we should make changes in a crisis. But of course, their current environment doesn't allow them to operate in a crisis. So this is the only time when there is a crisis that there's a forcing mechanism to actually try to do things better. So in committees, you've got sort of two major modalities of operations uh, that are public facing or could be public facing. One are hearings and the other are markups. Hearings are basically what we're doing here on this conversation today, where you have a bunch of people around the table where you talk to each other and you take in witnesses and you swear them in. And there's a lot of or if it happens behind the scenes to brief the members and to do subpoenas and things like that. But that's that's what a public hearing is. A markup's a little bit more complicated because you have to deal with a lot of um, amendments in theory. Uh, you have voting. Uh, people get wrapped up in like the idea about authentication and security around voting, which is actually is not a hard problem to resolve. You don't need to build an app for it. All you need to do is a roll call vote, by which I mean you just go down the list of people who are in the committee and you ask them how they vote and you can see them and they can see you and you can basically hear how they would vote, uh, just like you would do in person. But people don't, they have a hard time conceptualizing that. So they get kind of um, lost. The House floor is a similar matter to voting committees, except it's larger. Uh, so people like, well, how, how can you handle 400 people voting? It's actually not that hard to do. There's a lot of ways to resolve it. But because people don't usually think in these terms, um, uh, it gets complicated. So there's been, so Yesterday, uh, there was supposed to be, there actually came available an amend, uh, a rule in the House that would have made it possible to have remote deliberations by teleconference in the committees and pro what's called proxy voting, which is where you get someone else to vote for you uh, on the House floor. And that measure was dropped at 2 a.m. and then it was pull, pulled 10 hours later, um, most likely because leadership um, we're relying on Republicans to support the effort, but they hadn't actually done the outreach to get Republicans to be supportive of the effort, so it would not have succeeded. Um, this is, of course, a failure of leadership. They've known that this has been coming for months and months and months. The Senate's the same, except they're actually 
even more behind than the houses. While there is a great resolution from Senators Portman and Durbin, Mitch McConnell, just like Nancy Pelosi, has been unwilling or unable and mostly unwilling to move forward with any form of remote deliberations. And as a consequence, uh, both chambers have been defunct for largely six weeks, with the exception of passing one or two of these COVID bills. And they will continue to be defunct uh, both at the committee level and on the floor level for the foreseeable future. I, I, I want to break with protocol a little bit. At the opening, I said we would be taking questions at the end. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Um, but there are some questions that are coming in that I think just dovetail perfectly here. And I would really like uh, to kind of get some of those in. And uh, one of them uh, from uh, an anonymous uh, individual, uh, the question was, what about security of communications and the oversight of the U.S. intelligence community by congressional committees? Um, I know, Liz, I know that you and Daniel, uh, you work in that space. I'm not sure, uh, Corinna, how much uh, you and your clients necessarily or your, your members of your organizations always operate in that space. Amazon Web Services, I know, does have big business with my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, so... To, to this particular person's question, I think they do raise an interesting point. Um, how how do you deal essentially in this environment with classified matters? I mean, it's one thing, as you all know, when you're on the Hill, they have what are known as secure compartmented information facilities or SCIFs, uh, to use the inside the beltway term, where up to top secret and code word material uh, is kept. Uh, you also have you know fixed terminals for various kinds of, of data. Um, you, you can't exactly, you know, do that essentially if you're a house armed services committee or house Intel committee staffer. So uh, what's the solution there? Is there a solution there? And I'll just open the floor. So may, may, I'll start and then Liz, you can go next. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, there's a lot, there's a number of things that one can do sort of in these circumstances. First of all, there are a lot of the staff are still here in DC, so they can continue to go into the Capitol complex or to use other facilities that have um, access to these materials where they can continue their, their work. Um, what you've seen the thing was the NSA doing is basically they moved to a shift system uh, because of course you can't work from home in most circumstances. So they've created a three shift system where people are worked all through the day, but there's less of them present in person. But of course, what we have are the members uh, distributed throughout the country, which makes it very hard to have a committee meeting or a hearing. And of course, being in the same room is very dangerous. Uh, we had a, um, so we've been holding simulated hearings. We had General Petraeus uh, come and uh, speak at the last simulated hearing. And he basically said that he ran the, both the CIA and also um, uh, when, you know, when he was when he was working uh, as a general, like all the work was run through secure teleconferences that they would um, use military facilities and they would have conversations with people all around the world. And for committees to be able to do their business on classified matters, you could uh, you could take a similar approach. There are uh, 50, 56 FBI offices throughout the country. There are many, many, many skiffs throughout the country, both that are managed by the military or by other entities where you could have members of Congress go into those facilities so that you could have a conference call uh, or access, a, you know, a, basically a computer terminal or fax machine or whatever it is that you need to use uh, so that the committees could actually meet remotely in those circumstances using high-level 
um, using like high side technology that would protect the nature of the communications and they still be able to deliberate and, and do all the things that they need to do. But of course, that assumes that the committees are actually allowed to do their business, which under the current circumstances, uh, they don't seem to be. So instead they're having a lot of like informal conversations, but there's a lot of things they can't really talk about uh, because of the nature of where the members are now and they need to go and be and uh, be able to make act you know, access like more secure facilities so they can actually do the type of work. And then to, to Daniel's point about, yeah, to Daniel's point about, um, you know, the, the way that some of the intelligence agencies are handling this by, by um, working in shifts. Uh, one of the, I think, more systemic issues, so not um, not limited to coronavirus, but um, but certainly I think is is exacerbating the problem when it comes to oversight over the intelligence community is that most of the members on the on the committee that oversee the intelligence community don't have um, staff with adequate um, security clearance to adequate security clearances to help them do that oversight work. And so uh, while most congressional staff, at least for the DC offices, live in the nearby area and would be able to do that kind of shift um, shift work, uh, members are not here. And so if you're a member who is on the intelligence committee in the house uh, and you don't have a staffer with the security clearance at the level necessary to, to help go through some of those documents and, and, and questions and, and talk to those individuals, then you're in a much worse position than, than leadership of those committees or, or committee staff that, that do have those clearances. And so that's an issue that POGO and Demand Progress have been working on for a long time that I did want to flag. You know, there are, there are both issues that are unique to coronavirus. And then in this time, we're also seeing some of those longer standing systemic issues, you know, rearing their head and causing problems as well. Well, if, if, the, if the questions and comments that we're getting here from indication, I think uh, a lot of folks are kind of scratching their heads as well. Uh, Andrew Freeborg from Facebook uh, notes, if my city council and budget committee can work remotely, why can't Congress? And I, and I think we're beginning to to kind of get some contours around here uh, as to uh, why Congress should, in fact, uh, you know, be able to do that. Um, uh, Mike Stern is asking, uh, he's got a, got a comment and a, and a question here, uh, and it goes like this. The proxy voting proposal the House floated seems to raise a host of questions beyond just remote voting, i.e. could members, could all members give their proxies to one leader? Could those proxies leave it up to the leader to how to vote? Could a proxy receiver decline to vote the proxy? Thoughts on that? I'll just open that up to, to everybody. Daniel? So so as a starting point, and first of all, you know, of course, Mike is a, a, a former senior counsel with the House of Representatives, so he would know better, I suspect, than I do. But uh, I largely disfavor proxy voting. I think that proxy voting is, when you look at what the, the idea of, of what deliberations are, you know, so, the Congressional Research Service, my former employer, put out a report recently that went through remote deliberations and the questions of constitutionality. And there are two sort of two tests. One test that they use is sort of the are you physically present test, which is, doesn't work in these circumstances and I don't think is compelled by the Constitution. And the other test is like, are you able to participate to do business? And I think that proxy voting doesn't really look like being able to participate to do business. You are not there in person. You are not engaged in the conversation to the extent that members actually engage in the conversation that's taking place. Um, and um, 
uh, I think that it gets further away from what would be permissible under the Constitution. And concerns about people giving their votes to one or two people to be able to vote for them uh, is, is extraordinarily problematic. The way that the House proposal intended to get around this was that you wouldn't give a blanket proxy, but rather you would say on this particular measure, when it comes up, you must vote this way or you must vote that way without leaving any wiggle room, without leaving any discretion. Um, I think that does address to some extent the questions around like members directing that, they're, that they are in fact in control of their own votes. Uh, but I think that it uh, there's a lot that I would take sort of against proxy voting on the floors uh, simply because um, you're not able to participate in the debate. You are not engaging in business. You are, you are in many respects sort of separate from the conversation that's taking place. And I, and I should note that on the Senate side, of course, proxy voting happens in committees all the time. On the House side, proxy voting was uh, the rule for a long time, and it hasn't been the rule for about 20-something years, but they had used proxy voting for a long time um, for when people were not able to be present. Um, I think that proxy voting is and should be a disfavored alternative. I think that being able to participate in real time and being able to be seen to participate in real time um, is probably more in line with the way that we would understand what the framers would have meant had they been able to anticipate uh, these circumstances. And that proxy voting does run the risk of putting us more in the line of like a parliamentary system where the members uh, have a vote, but they don't have a voice. And in our system of government, members should have both a voice and a vote. Um. Liz, we have uh, uh, someone in Montclair, New Jersey, uh, who's got this for this one for you. We have seen that oversight can become dysfunctionally uh, dysfunctional political, dysfunctionally political, and actually aggravate the effective implementation of targeted activities. With the broad scope and size of the program encompassed by CARES, can you define the what, who, and how effective oversight can actually be exerted? That is a big question. Um, the yeah. what, who, and why of oversight right now. Um, I guess I'll start with the why. Uh, you know, CARES Act appropriated $2.2 trillion. Um, I think that's a good enough reason that we should have really robust oversight in place. Um, that is a ton of money uh, to go out of the door very quickly. Um, you know, I want to touch on some of the some of the issues that I raised earlier. Um, that the CARES Act created additional oversight mechanisms to situated in the executive branch um, through the Special Inspector General at the Treasury Department and the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, uh, situated at um, at the Council of Inspectors General, which is made up of inspectors general from across um, the various agencies that are involved in this spending. Um, now, the PRAC, the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, I think is is one of the is one of the oversight mechanisms that's closest to being up and running, the new oversight mechanisms, I should say, is close uh, closest to be up and running. Um, we should be seeing public reporting coming out of that, um, out of the PRAC in the next few months, I believe. Uh, and so I think that's a good place to keep an eye on in terms of the, of the um, who, uh, especially since the Special Inspector General at Treasury is going to need to be confirmed by the Senate. And who knows when that's going to happen? Who knows when they're going to be here uh, to consider a nomination. And that's certainly not something we'd want to see go through without really careful consideration by the Congress, just given the importance of the of the individual
individual who leads that that office and and the responsibility they'll have. Um, and then there's also the Congressional Oversight Commission, which has a few members now, um, but still doesn't have a, a leader appointed. Um, but I think it's it's you know additional questions there about how how cooperative the executive branch is going to be with requests they get for information from there, whether or not they will be stymied. Um, and so you know it's a it's a huge question, and so I'm not quite sure how to answer it all in the time we have. But but I did want to highlight a few of those oversight mechanisms as as a good place to keep an eye on. Um, and we're doing a ton of reporting on on those. So our website is also a good good place to get more information. Yeah, I would say that uh, literally about uh, the websites of all of your organizations, of course, as, as well as Cato's for folks who are looking for uh, for data on this. Um, Corinna, uh, David, uh, a viewer, has has a question that I think is is definitely worth worth asking since we're talking about money here. What is the best source of U.S. government spending data available to the public? My guess is it's going to be a plural answer, but I'll, I'll throw that over to you. Um, I would definitely recommend usaspending.gov. Um, that is an excellent sort of one-stop shop resource uh, for government spending uh, that was established by the Data Act and has been a really good source. Um, that. There are some other resources that are not put out by the government that uh, might be worth looking at. USA Facts recently published um, what they are calling America's 10K, which is a report on the financial health and well-being. But one of the challenges with that data is that there is a lag in reporting. So as agencies are spending all of this money and we have you know, structured data getting all of that. It's not necessarily as up to date as people might be expecting. So uh, USA Facts gathered data from across the federal government that goes back to 2017. USAspending.gov is a little bit quicker, but this is a lot of money to move through the pipes and the data infrastructure takes a while to catch up to that fast reporting. So I would suggest those two resources, bearing in mind that the immediacy is something that we could really work on. Thanks very much uh, for that that great and very comprehensive answer. Um, we've we've got a couple of other questions here that that I really do think are, are important to kind of get at. Um, Jacob Petote from YouTube uh, had this to say: A number of state legislators uh, legislatures have passed remote legislating rules. If this begins to gain traction in state politics, could it become more palatable? to Congress in the future. Thoughts on that one? So we've been watching this happen both at the states and on the international level. Sorry guys, <laughs> I didn't mean to jump in so quickly. Um, but we've been working to help the states and uh, governments around the world to do this as well. Some of them already had some infrastructure in place uh, to deal with you know, particular circumstances like people on uh, maternity leave and things like that who are unable to vote in person. Um, Right now, during this crisis, I think state, local, and federal government all needs to be able to work remotely. And uh, the fact that New Jersey and Utah uh, uh, in particular and a number of other uh, uh, states have already allowed remote voting on their floors as well as in their committees, the fact that the United Kingdom, the mother of parliaments and the House of Commons has moved to remote voting, uh, sorry, remote deliberations, including prime minister's questions yesterday, uh, by Zoom, and the House of Lords will be using Zoom shortly, uh, suggests that it isn't about necessarily 
uh, length of service for a parliament, since that is the oldest parliament that I'm aware of, um, but rather has to do with the desire to work and to be seen to work. Uh, and a lot of the institutional factors that arise from it, we're seeing uh, Brazil and Spain uh, in particular are leading in these efforts as well. Uh, Spain, uh, sorry, Brazil has a remote voting app um, that works really quite well, although you don't need one, um, but they built one that actually addresses a lot of the security concerns that exist. The issue here really isn't about technology. It's about people. Uh, the technology and the security and all those other concerns are relatively solvable. They're not that hard. Um, we just did a, a, a briefing last week with former members of Congress. We had 70 former members of Congress on Zoom and we held a simulated hearing. Uh, so, you know, we sometimes hear arguments that members of Congress aren't all that tech savvy. Well, former members of Congress might be even less so. Uh, and yet they found that this was a platform that worked for them and allowed them to engage in appropriate debate. This is really about political will. It's about the desire to do your job and to be willing to innovate. And current leadership in the House and the Senate are afraid that this will affect the way, will affect their power. And unfortunately, uh, they have been, they have neither been leading nor been following, but they've been let the house, they've been letting the House and Senate get left behind. Liz, you had a thought? And yeah, you know the question. I was struck by by the way the um, the question was framed that um, whether or not it would increase the likelihood that Congress would do it. Um, I and I don't have an answer to that question because I think it's really hard to predict what Congress is going to do. But I did want to make the point that as we see, you know, states and local and localities switching to uh, to some kind of remote voting system, and, and Daniel highlighted how other countries have been doing it. I think the more examples we have of this, um, the harder it becomes for Congress to explain why they aren't doing something similar or why they haven't figured it out. And so I think it is really important for constituents to be reaching out to their to their members and saying, you know, that this is something that's really important to them. And why haven't, you know, asking them, why haven't you done some of these things that that on the state and local level I'm seeing, I'm seeing my representatives do. And, you know, don't forget that your member of Congress works for you and, and they should be responsive to what your concerns are. Um, we have Alex Knopp, a former state rep, uh, not identified to which state here, but uh, he raises the following. Does remote voting slash legislating tend to strengthen leadership and weaken rank and file or vice versa, both in regards to Congress and state legislators? Daniel, I think you kind of touched on that uh, a little bit. This this really, at the end of the day, uh, at least from your perspective, and I'd, I'd like to hear what uh, what Liz and, and Corinna have to say here. But at least, Daniel, from your perspective, this this is really about power. It, it's about the inability of either a Nancy Pelosi or a Mitch McConnell um, to basically admit that this centralized leadership model that they use uh, may serve their ends, but it doesn't serve the larger ends of Congress as an institution. Is, is that a fair, fair summation, essentially? Yeah, I think that's generally right. I mean, so what we have right now, particularly with the two trillion plus dollars that went out the door, is we have a quintumvirate to, to make up a word, right? You know, it's, it's um, you know, Schumer and uh, McConnell and Pelosi and McCarthy and Trump. And they're basically the only ones who really get to play in this space. And the rest of the members of Congress are reduced to a Greek chorus. Like they don't really have a say in what's going on. And the way that you implement remote voting can have significant effects. You could set it up where it's 
the proxy voting system that Pelosi favors and nobody else does, um, which would raise the risk of centralizing power even further in her hands. Uh, if you had remote deliberations all the time, then it would weaken leadership because leadership couldn't jam you on, hey, it's Christmas break coming up and you really want to go home, so vote for this thing and then you can go home. Even if you don't like it, like you got to go, you, you know, like, so where, where we are sort of organizationally is you need to have remote deliberations in the context of a pandemic where it's unsafe to be in person. Uh, as a general rule, legislatures should meet in person. They should not be disparate. They should be together. There is something that is lost when you communicate by teleconference as opposed to in person. Like there is a, a, a difference um, uh, between the modalities of communication that take place. But right now, the choice, I believe, is between a remote Congress and no Congress. And in those circumstances, it's best to have remote Congress over no Congress. And you want to make sure that uh, you don't entrench a system that uh, empowers one faction over another, whether it's leadership committees or the, you know, these sort of individual members. So the answer to your question is, it depends. It depends on how you do it. Um, but yes, it could have the effect of moving where power resides. And legislatures need to be thoughtful about how they implement these systems. Um, but at the same time, they know they, they should understand that they have to do it because the choice is either between operating or just simply becoming defunct. And, and to that end, uh, uh, Liz and Corinna, if you've got some examples of how the administration has essentially exploited the de facto power vacuum here of Congress being gone in, in, in order to move things uh, that Trump and his cabinet secretaries and, and other officials have, have viewed as priorities, but that raise some real fundamental either constitutional questions or just good governance questions. Uh, the impact essentially of Congress being gone. If you've got like a top two or three, uh, I think it'd be great for folks to hear that. Um, I can jump in. I think, you know, the one thing that that really rises to the top is less about um, kind of the Trump administration and their priorities and more about, again, kind of oversight over um, over the spending in, and what's going on and where money is going. You know, there's there was a lot of reporting um, about the SBA small loan program and how, you know, it, it was being taken advantage of by by corporations and entities that that the program really wasn't designed for. Uh, and and I think, you know, one of the things that that I I was so frustrated by was that Congress, uh, their response to that was just to increase money to the program rather than ensure that these oversight mechanisms are, are as strong as they need to be to be able to uh, to oversee every aspect of the spending, um, we've highlighted for for congressional offices that there are that there are jurisdictional holes in you know in in the type of oversight or sorry the type of spending that's going to be done by the government and who can oversee it. And it's really it's going to be really critical going forward um, as soon as possible for Congress to plug those jurisdictional holes so that there aren't pots of money that that essentially won't be overseen until like long after the money is out the door. And so, you know, I think that it was really frustrating from from my perspective that that Congress didn't take this opportunity to uh, to to beef up those oversight mechanisms. And I have to think part of the problem is that you know there are just so few members involved in the drafting process and and in the negotiation process right now because they aren't here and they aren't privy to those conversations. And and that's just not a workable system. Corinna, you had something with respect to the census that you wanted to raise? 
Yeah, I think it's important to remember that there is an immediacy to this pandemic, but there are also some knockdown effects. So we've seen the census operations, field operations get delayed pretty reasonably. We need to delay that for the health and safety of our census takers, of the communities that they're going into. But delaying the collection of census data means that there is going, is should there be a delay in restrict, uh, redistricting data getting to the states? How is the data that uh, we get from the census to use formula funding is going to happen? These are really crucial questions that do have political implications. You know, you know, we all like to say that data is unbiased, but the uses of census data can get very political. And so with the census residing within the executive branch, we really need to have multiple stakeholders looking at how we are conducting oversight of one of the most important data collections in our country, uh, the 2020 census. So there are there is a regular business that needs to be addressed. Thank, thanks so very much uh, for that, Daniel. <clears throat> I, I want to turn, you know, kind of quickly back, uh, back to you, but also uh, to Liz. We have seen some very high-profile actions here uh, by the administration. Uh, from my perspective, by far one of the most outrageous was the sacking uh, of Michael Atkinson, the uh, the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, uh, who was responsible for trying to provide some level of protection for the still, so far as I know, anonymous uh, Ukraine gate whistleblower. Um, that, that sent, in my judgment at least, a devastatingly chilling message, uh, not just to any potential whistleblowers, but more importantly, perhaps, to any other IGs out there. Uh, thoughts on that? Uh, are, we, are we hearing rumblings about other things of that nature? Well, so you're Thanks, right, Jamie. and I think that this is... You're right, and there's no, uh, for it, a number of things. Oh, Let's sorry, Liz. Go ahead. Daniel, go ahead. We'll go back oh, in just a second. Sorry, muted. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and I think Liz can talk about this better than I can, but I'll, I'll get it started, which is that. So we saw the presidential signing statement um, that was issued um, uh, on the passage of the COVID 3.0 bill where the president's like, I'm just not going to do some of these things that, I, that are in the law that I just signed. Uh, including a lot of the enforcement mechanisms. Like, I don't believe that you can you can uh, have uh, oversight over what I'm doing, that you can't communicate to Congress directly that you need to go and talk to me first, and then I will decide whether you people who are overseeing the COVID response can then talk to Congress. Uh, you you had, as you identified, Pat, the firing of the, uh, of, of the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. You had also, there was a person that was named to run one of the... Um, sort of oversight entities um, uh, for for COVID that was also, who was an acting and was basically removed from that position. So like the administration is significantly interfering with the ability of Congress to get information about what's going on. It is saying that it will not follow the law. That is what the signing statements are saying is that I refuse to implement the law that I just signed into place, which also is undermining the ability to negotiate with the Trump administration because uh, whatever agreement you reach, you know that they're going to go back on it on the next day. And because Congress is not around, they don't have their tools available to them to go and take a pound of flesh out of the administration. If you want to go and undermine congressional oversight, Congress can cut your funding. They can haul you in for hearings. They can subpoena documents. 
they can pillory in the press. They can, uh, you know, they can, they can go further. They can hold you in contempt. Like there's a lot of things that they can do. But when Congress is not around, when they have no power, when they can't meet, when they can't hold hearings, when they can't hold markups, when they can't issue subpoenas, when they can't go and use the appropriations process to tell you what you need to do, and when they can't push back against uh, undue assertions of power like the craziness inside the presidential signing statements, they create what you identified at the top, Pat, which is a power vacuum, where instead of having a system of checks and balances, our system has become unbalanced because there is no check on the executive branch. And that is the fundamental problem. And I know Liz can talk a lot more about the inspector general and the need to protect them and make sure they can only be removed for cause. But the only people who can do that is Congress. Right, right, you're absolutely right, Daniel. Yeah, Daniel's absolutely right. You know, I think we've seen a lot of kind of undermining these oversight mechanisms. Um, and, you know, especially when it comes to inspectors general, they have for uh, for their history had really strong bipartisan support behind them as kind of an institution. Inspectors general aren't just in the executive branch, but they also report to Congress. And so they have enjoyed this kind of special relationship with Congress that has also resulted in bipartisan support for them. And, and and to Daniel's point about what we're seeing in response from Congress here is, is a lot of letters, is a lot of letters to the president, is letters to other IGs, um, kind of highlighting some of the problems with what, what we're seeing out of the White House in particular right now when it comes to inspectors general. And that's and I don't mean to undermine or, or say that that's not at all useful because it is, you know, that is a really good starting point. But, you know, it's not members of Congress have many more tools at their disposal generally than just sending letters. And so I'd really, you know, I would rather see a much more robust response, you know, legislation that gives IGs for cause removal protections or, you know, some kind of uh, kill switch in the appropriations that if you don't cooperate with these oversight mechanisms, then you can't have access to any of this funding. Uh, you know, that's what we would like to see. That's what that's what I think a strong and empowered Congress would be doing right now. And instead, we have, you know, helpful words and and we've got, you know, mem even members of the president's own political party reaching out and saying, hey, you know, your rhetoric around this and your actions around this are undermining oversight, but letters only get you so far. And, and I would much rather see a more forceful and aggressive response from Congress. And, and I have to believe one of the reasons why we aren't seeing that right now is because there is so much confusion around how Congress is going to operate moving forward in the short term. I've personally always been a fan of self-executing mechanisms and legisl legislation that take money or things away from agencies or departments when they fail to do what they need to do. I'm a huge fan of, of, of that kind of tool. Uh, we, are, we are drawing down. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're drawing down here to uh, um, only about um, uh, six or seven minutes really left uh, in our time together. So I want to, want to take this, um, this time to, to take one more question here real quickly. Uh, also from, from Montclair, uh, this person asking on a scale of one to five, one being totally out of control and five being in complete control, where would each of you write the degree of control asserted over the 2.2 trillion CARES programs and briefly reasons, uh, for your particular rating. And, uh, Corinne, I'll start with you. Um, I'm going to take the data policy prerogative and say, we don't have the data to answer that yet. 
we we just don't <laughs> it is so fast and uh as a person who really believes in evidence-based policy making i need to see the evidence first i like a, a diplomatic answer. but completely yeah. reasonable answer yeah, you know, I think ahead, I think the honest answer to that is is we just is it's too early to tell. Um, my instincts say we have kind of lost control of this ship, um, and I think the lack of real time oversight mechanisms is a is a real is just a critical problem that Congress has not addressed yet, um, and and really needs to. But um, but but my sense is that you know there's we we don't have the control we should. Daniel. Yeah, so I'm, with Congress ineffective, with the IEGs hamstrung, with the administration saying that it's unaccountable to other entities about what's going on, uh, and uh, some of the mechanisms being set up not being put into place, and like, let's just, and I wouldn't say that it. We can't. We can't know now that. Um, it's, there's no control over what's going on, but it really looks like all the mechanisms that you would need to have control are not operating. So um, if you were to have, a, if you asked me what the crystal ball is, I would say that we're going to waste a ton of money and do a lot of stupid things because the people that implement it don't know what they're doing and there's no one keeping a watchful eye over them. Uh, the jury's out in terms of whether that will be true, but we know that if you give people trillions of dollars and tell them to go do stuff in the dark, well, you shouldn't be surprised with what you get. Uh, speaking for Kato, I, I think we would probably say amen to that. Um, we're down to literally just the last, last few minutes here. Uh, when we actually get Congress functioning again uh, in, in the way that I think all of us believe that it should be, um, and I'm going to start with Corinna, then we'll do Liz, and, and we'll give uh, Daniel the, the last word here. But for each of you, I'd just like for you to give us, you know, your top one or two priorities uh, in, a, in just a minute or so for when Congress comes back in, what you want to see them deal with uh, essentially immediately. And, and Corinna, we'll start with you. Oh, there are many things, but I would say that... Um, implementation of the protocols in the foundations for evidence-based policymaking will be incredibly important, including the establishment of a national secure data service. We have tremendous data assets that will give us a lot of answers. And by opening that up in a privacy protected way to make sure that researchers and policymakers can develop the best evidence is one of the fastest things Congress can do to make sure that we start to right the ship again. I've got th I've got three things. Um, I would like to see Congress give inspectors general for cause removal protections or some kind of comparable um, protection and in, in isolation from political retaliation so that they have the um, so that they have the necessary independence and insulation to do their jobs well. Um, I'd like to see Congress give additional whistleblower protections to any anybody who works at a at an entity that uh, has received federal funding under 
um, under our, our spending on coronavirus, and then also to any essential workers deemed essential by their you know localities, so that they can you know the people on the front lines with an eye with their eyes and feet on the ground can who can see what's going wrong in our response are, are protected if they make disclosures about that. And then third, I think it's just so incredibly critical that Congress take a look at all those different oversight mechanisms and ensure and close those jurisdictional holes to make sure that there is no type of spending that the government is doing right now in response to coronavirus that's being done in the dark without any oversight over it. So I would say a couple of things. One is they have to get this continuity of Congress stuff down, right? They can't go under again in the fall or later on this stuff. Like they have to be able to continue to function uh, in the various circumstances. So that's one. Two, they need to invest in the legislative branch. They need to put hundreds of millions of dollars into Congress so they can actually conduct uh, appropriate oversight, so they can work the appropriations bill, so they can work the National Defense Authorization Act, so they can do their jobs, so they can conduct oversight. The final thing is a whole swath of transparency and accountability measures. Uh, everything from strengthening IGs uh, against removal to protecting whistleblowers to protecting the press to having uh, strengthening FOIA to all the things that we have seen that have helped hold the administration to count over the last couple of years, making it so that it's not dependent on Congress, so that there are mechanisms to vindicate these rights and these powers, and that it goes further to rebalance the power so that we actually have an appropriate balance between the three branches of government, which is something that we don't have anymore. Corinna Turbis, Liz, Liz Hempelwitz, Daniel Schumann, our guest today. Thank you so very much for carving out the time to be with us and to share your experience, your insights, and your ideas. I want to thank everybody who watched online. We did have a lot of questions. I'm sorry we were not able to get to quite everything, uh, but we will be able to get this video up uh, hopefully before uh, the afternoon is out. Uh, no pressure there, IT staff. Uh, thanks to, to everyone again for being a part of this. Uh, for the Cato Institute, I'm Patrick Eddington.